We will now read today's scripture reading before we move into a time of testimony. And today's scripture reading is Hebrews 12, verses 12 through 17. And if you'd like to follow along in our Pew Bibles, we are on page 1009. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. This is the word of the Lord. I will now invite Nick Verrett up to the stage. Please give him a warm welcome. Good morning. Uh, my name is Nick Verrett, and this is my testimony. I grew up in a, a Catholic home and went to church just about every Sunday. Uh, I went to confession when I was about uh, 11, and I remember crying and opened up to the priest. They had lied to my mom, and uh, I was bad and mean to her. I should like going to church and rode my bike there myself when no one else in my house would want to go. It seemed like almost every service was about something I was going through. My dad and mom were divorced when I was about nine months old, and my mom was alone taking care of me and my brother. Uh, she ended up marrying my stepdad, who was a good example of a dad and a husband uh, supposed to be. I never saw or appreciated that until I got older. I was too busy being angry and not forgiving my biological dad. I also was also taught uh, prejudice and racism growing up. I was told to be proud uh, that I was an Indian. One side of my family told me not to trust uh, white people because they took our land and owed us. My aunt couldn't even go to school when she was in sixth grade because of segregation. On the other hand, I was being raised by a white stepdad. I was made fun of uh, a lot by uh, kids because I was different, mostly white kids in the neighborhood and in my school. I didn't know where I really fit in. Eventually, the anger with my dad and being picked on grew inside. I thought to myself I would never be like my dad, and I would never treat people the way I was treated. I wasn't as bad as him. I began thinking I was owed something. Uh, the rap music I listened to at the time seemed like the only thing that I could relate to. Growing up without a dad, uh, not being rich, uh, being angry with authority uh, because they were trying to stop the way I wanted to live. This was when I eventually began smoking weed and getting drunk. As I grew up, there were parts of my life where I felt close to God and trying to get right. In times, I was also far away and rebelling against everything. The times I was far away were some of the darkest, loneliest, and saddest times that I can recall. I had suicidal thoughts, and the only thing that helped me out of them uh, was prayer and fear that God wouldn't forgive me if I killed myself. When I was 21, I started working with a guy who I went to high school with. He was completely different from when I knew him back then. He went from being a stoner rebel to a joyful married man. He told me that he had been saved 
and didn't live like that anymore and was a born-again Christian. He encouraged me to start reading the Bible. I felt guilty um, by the way I was living and wanted newness too. I decided to get my life together. I got engaged and was married within a year. I needed a way to support my wife and helping people was something I always enjoyed to do, so I joined the Coast Guard. Uh, once I got out of boot camp, um, I stopped going to church and, and reading the Bible. I was in a new place and didn't know where to go. I continue relying on the little I knew about what the Bible said growing up. The more I looked at my life, the worse I felt about myself and would never admit that I was miserable. I began turning to alcohol for comfort and temporary happiness. I was a hard worker and I liked to play hard on my time off. I didn't realize how it was affecting my relationship with my wife and God. My time off consisted of me being drunk or wanting to get drunk. This lasted for about two and a half years. In 2008, my nephew was born and had a problem with his heart and needed surgery. I said I would quit drinking uh, if he wouldn't die. Everything went well with surgery and I quit drinking and a lot of things started getting better in my life. In 2010, I transferred to a ship in South Carolina. It was difficult and I was brought into a different culture of the Coast Guard. I resorted back to my old ways of dealing with pain and stress and drinking again. I felt like I let myself down and turned my back on God after he kept my nephew, nep my nephew safe. I was ashamed and buried the regret and remorse deep inside. Uh, this was my rock bottom spiritually. I thought I could live a life of sin and not pay the consequences. I was transferred two years later to my home state of Louisiana. Within a few weeks of settling in, a hurricane struck. We evacuated and everything in the area uh, we lived was flooded or underwater. My wife and I prayed that we wouldn't lose everything. To our amazement, our house and all our material things were spared. Uh, that's when she said we need to go to church. So we went and I started reading the Bible again. The words cut deep and exposed all the darkness inside of me. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I quit drinking again sometime in 2013. I confessed a lot of horrible parts of my life to my wife and tried to make amends with people I had done wrong. I tried proving that I had been changed by not doing bad stuff. It was like a guilt offering for the sin I had been doing. But deep inside, I felt the baggage of guilt, even though I was sorry beyond words. It wasn't until I truly understood, believed in the words of the Lord, it is finished. When I believed, understood, and trusted that, I was free. Jesus took my place and offered his life for mine for no cost to me. but it cost God his son. Through the grace of God, I was able to repent. After knowing that forgiveness, I didn't want to go back where I had been. Proverbs 84.10 says, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. I'd rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. God was pursuing me my entire life, 
I still can't comprehend the patience um, he had and still has with me. At any time, my heart could have been hardened to the point of death where I could no longer have heard his voice. I don't deserve an ounce of God's forgiveness, but he gives it. My wife is my treasure on earth, who has never given it up on me in the past 21 years of knowing her. He has blessed us with three children, and he has given me peace. I have forgiven my dad and everyone I can remember I had a grudge with, and I'm free from that too. Of all the times I tried to change, I lacked discipline. Without discipline, there was no change in my attitude or lifestyle. I understand this is why discipleship and surrounding yourself, your life uh, with believers is so important. God's word says in Proverbs 27, 17, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. God is the one who can and will make all things new. I have been sober for almost seven years now. This doesn't make me good. It makes me grateful. I'm not perfect, but God is patiently working on me to get me there. Even writing this testimony, God showed me there were still weights I need to lay aside. God is the only pure thing that has been in my life. It's not a common thing to have a relationship with the Creator. This relationship is special, and I'm learning to cherish it more and more. He has given me opportunities to respond to the changes he's trying to make in my life for his purpose. I have failed a lot at making some of those changes, but I'm grateful he understands what it's like to be a man and gives me mercy and grace. I'm continuously learning how much more faith I need. Thank you. No need to preach anymore. Let's dismiss. <laughs> Who's clapping extra over there? It's messed up, man. Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful for your transformative power as evidenced in our brother Nick. Lord, we ask for your blessing upon him, Stephanie, his family, his kids. Um, we ask, Lord, that we would see the continued evidence of your power working in the lives of your church. I thank you that we get to be witnesses to your amazing hands. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, last week we looked at discipline, and thanks um, Nick for bringing that up, reminding us of that, and that that purpose of that discipline can be found in verse 11 um, of chapter 12, and it reads this, to yield, this is the purpose of this discipline, to yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Where we move from that discipline to learn from it and then to use that for discipleship, to be trained by that discipline. And there are these words, these phrases in the rest of chapter 12 that speak to this, this training, this discipline. You'll look at verse 14, it says strive. You look at verse 15, it says see to it, which actually it is carrying through the rest of those verses to, to start off verse 15. You go down to verse 25, it says see that you do not and what we have here are instructions for 
the Christian life and how to live it, not just as a simple list of do's and don'ts, but, but what will continually, consistently be needed to stay the course for the long haul. Uh, so let's take a look at verses 12 and 13 here. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. What this is talking about is just that steadiness, that persistence, and not just this short-term uh, life, which, which many people can do, but to, to keep strong and to keep straight for the long term. You think about marriage, that anyone can enjoy the honeymoon, right? Whether that's a week or two weeks. I heard of a couple that did three months. It was amazing. Um, they're still married, too, so it's good. But how many marriages can actually go the distance? You know, our divorce rate here in the U.S. is over 40%. How many can go the distance? And so verse 12 is quoting from Isaiah chapter 50 or 35 verse 3. And the writer knows the Old Testament really, really well as we can see from the, the references from Hebrews 1 all the way till now and even in this chapter. But in in chapter 35 of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah writes about holiness. And we know that the antonym of holiness is common. And so how those weak hands and those feeble knees are those who are discouraged and in despair. And much of the time you can tell how people are doing by their physical appearance. You can look at them and you can tell you know, if they're slouched over, or if their countenance is down, or whatever, it, it, whatever you see, it, it tends to mean something has gotten them down. And this tended to be those written to the audience of this letter, those who were discouraged because times back at this time were really tough. It was difficult for them to remain optimistic about things. And so discouragement is often used by the enemy, especially when you try to do something good. And so often, discouragement is just right around the corner as you're doing something good. And we need to be level-headed, level-footed to understand that, hey, when you're doing something good, that discouragement is just right around the corner. And we need to stay on the path. We need to stay strong. And so questions for you this morning are, how strong are you doing? What, what is that path that you're on, and is, is that the straight path? Looking to verse 14, strive for peace with everyone, everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So strive for that harmony. Strive for holiness. Don't strive to be common, that you were set aside by God for a purpose, and that we are to work at that, to pursue peace with everyone, not just people you like, because most likely you won't be at peace with the people you don't like. So pursue it with everyone. Make every effort to live in this peace, to live in this holiness. And this actually doesn't happen naturally. Actually, it's, it's very rare, if not impossible, that, that peace and holiness just happen. Peace and holiness are things that take a lot of effort to, to achieve. Strive for peace with everyone. And this is so hard because it is easy to be at peace with people that you agree with. But the scriptures are telling us to strive for peace with everyone, those who you don't agree with, 
those who don't live like you live or believe the things you believe. And this peace we are to strive for is not at the expense of holiness. Therefore, we are not to compromise because we are not common. But we are to come like everyone else and we are to strive for holiness. Holiness is that framework for peace. So holiness is what distinguishes us from everyone else. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body, striving for peace with everyone. And for holiness is, is how we identify with Christ, to, pee, to be at, at peace with everyone without compromising who we are in Christ. We are to be holy. We are different. We are not common. Verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. And so here's this first see to it. See to it that we grow in grace, not in bitterness. Don't fail to obtain the grace of God. Grace puts us on this path toward God. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1 reads, The grace of God is communicated to us in the scriptures, but it can just be... Uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm quoting my own writing. <laughs> Forgive me. I am, I'm not... I repent. So oftentimes we are um, becoming religious. And we just kind of do like a checklist of things where, okay, I don't lie, I don't steal, I don't murder people, I don't this. And, I, and you just start going through a checklist of things as opposed to the grace that transformed my life. And I appreciate so much in Nick's um, testimony that we see an evidence of a transformed life, not just a simple checklist of, I don't drink anymore, I don't get drunk anymore, I don't do this, I don't do that. But that he's grateful for those things. So sometimes we substitute these religious actions that we go through for grace. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1, it reads this, Working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. We can be here and sing these songs, but it's not necessarily worship. We can give but we're not necessarily giving out of a heart of generosity or a cheerful heart. And we can listen to the word of God, but is this just a story? Or is this something that is penetrating deep to be able to transform our soul? See, so many times people are doing these religious actions, but they're missing the grace of God in their life. And so we need the soil of our soul ready to receive that grace and not bitterness. When we miss the grace of God, it isn't because it's not accessible to us. Rather, it's because we are not making ourselves available to it. And bitterness is, is so easy to take root, isn't it? Now, a picture of this root of bitterness is, it can be found in Deuteronomy chapter 29, starting in verse 16. You know how we lived in the land of Egypt and how we came through the midst of the nations through which you passed. And you have seen their detestable things, their idols of wood and stone, of silver and gold, which were among them. Beware lest there be among you a man or a woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from 
the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. It is so difficult to get rid of roots that are deep and they're spread out. And these roots are really difficult to see because they're buried deep. And when looking around us, sometimes it's difficult to see these roots of bitterness because they're not on the surface. And you find this out about people later, because at first when you meet them, you kind of see just the tree trunk and you see the leaves and you just see the branches and you see these beautiful parts of them. And it's not until you kind of start digging a little bit deeper that you start seeing a little bit of bitterness. So you, it's not until you kind of hung out with them for a while that you start noticing some things and how they talk, and how they treat people. And so when you start pulling these roots out, you also notice that it's, it's an absolute mess because other things get pulled up with it, and, and dirt is everywhere, and these deep root systems. We have these trees on the side here, and they're actually kind of ruining our building structure, and they're kind of going under the sidewalk, and they're buckling the sidewalk, and they're kind of ruining that retaining wall, so we have to pull these roots out. But it's not that easy. We actually have to bring someone in to pull up the root systems in a good way that it doesn't damage the structure. So it just messes things up. And all the beautiful things around it, whether it's this church or other plants around it, it's just pulling all these things up and it's growing into pipes and it's doing all these different things. So we need to see to it, see to it that that root of bitterness doesn't defile others. Because it does. When you start pulling at the stuff, it starts ruining other things all around it. And once it springs up and the work gets started to uproot that bitterness, it does start affecting things around. Now, the best way to deal with these issues is when they're small. When they're small, when, when they're just springing up and you can uproot it completely and then uh, sometimes it pops up and pops back up and then you know like, oh, I didn't get that root system well enough and this is happening in my front yard. It's so irritating. I have this blackberry vine. <laughs> Those that of you that are laughing understand this. And that thing has pricked me so many times but I don't want it in my front yard because my kids are playing there and I don't want them to trip over this thing. But I, I can't uproot the thing. It just, I, I don't know, I, I thought I did. And it was a huge, bulbous root. And I was like, I got it. And then next year, it like sprung back up. I was like, what in the world? That thing is like zombie blackberry bush. It just, <laughs> just keeps coming back up. We need to be really careful that that root of bitterness doesn't get embedded in our church. We need it rooted out. Verse 16, that no one, and you can plug and see to it in front of this as well, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. And so that phrase, see to it, in verse 15 carries over to verse 16 here. And we need to see to it that sexual immorality and unholiness are rejected. That we're set apart to God, away from sin, and we are to be holy. Now, remember that these early Christians, they lived in this pagan society, and the warning to these believers was to uproot those, those bitter roots because they caused trouble. 
And, they, and, and so the other thing is you need to reject the sexual immorality and the unrighteousness. And you're thinking like, man, you Christians are such prudes. You guys are always talking about sexual immorality. Like, why is that such a big deal? That's so natural. It's just, well, sex is natural. When people are... Um, You're right. Christianity does highlight this sin a lot. And a lot of people are wondering, why in the world do you guys focus so much on these sexual things? Let me tell you why. This is highlighting how people worship creation, what is created, over the creator you do realize God created this wonderful thing we call sex. And it is a good thing. I have four kids, so it's great. <laughs> sex is great. But much of society and culture has idolized it. I don't know if you've noticed but they've idolized it. And it's one of those idols that has always been around. It's not just now. Always. And so God is going back to how we as humans are worshiping creation over creator. And so when you're talking about why you make such a big deal, you Christians make such a big deal about sexual immorality, it's going back to worshiping idols. It's going back to false gods. It's going back to worshiping a creation that God created over the creator. Now, so why does Esau get brought up into this then? He's not like known for this sexual immorality, dude. Like why is he brought into this story? Because Esau was overtaken by what was created by the creator. Over the creator that Esau's physical appetite overtook him, conquered him. And this physical appetite in the heat of that moment, you know, when you were teenagers and sitting next to that gal, and you're like, that heat of the moment, you're ready, you know, was defeated by that fleeing moment for what was his inheritance for the rest of his life. Because he was an heir to what was already his. And so he sells out his birthright for a mere moment of what he could have had any time. In the context of marriage, I can have sex any time. Well, if my wife agrees. <laughs> but virtually any time. And I'm going to give up these moments prior to my marriage for the inheritance of being a child of God? Are you kidding? That's Esau. I'm going to give up what's mine for just this moment because I'm hungry. And I just want to feed that appetite. And so it's when people worship their physical appetite over their birthright of being a child of God where people are overtaken by a mere moment. Come on, guys, it's minutes. It's minutes. 
You're going to give up your inheritance for minutes for something to be had at any time, anywhere, for a birthright. And there are so many people like Esau just selling out their birthright for a mere moment to feed their physical appetite. Creation over creator. And you and I, we all know people who are like this, who, you know, they spend their lives, decades, to get where they are, all to have it crumble in just a few moments. We know that, right? Whether it be politicians, whether it be pastors, whether it be whoever out there, you, you, you build your entire career, your entire life for this place that you've taken, this title, this prestige, this career, whatever it may be, and just for mere moments, gone. Gone. That physical appetite taking over. See to it, meaning whatever it takes. Get it done. Don't do it in a way contrary to the Bible, but see to it that you get it done, that you take care of what you need to take care of. See to it, not so that, that God accepts us because we're doing these do's and don'ts, because God already accepts you. You're his kid. And it's, it's you that is rejecting God, not God rejecting you. If you are indeed his child, then live like it. That the inheritance is yours. Don't sell out for a mere moment. Don't go over creation, over the creator. Verse 17. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. And you'll, you'd kind of wonder, like, the guy's crying. Why, why wouldn't God just be like, okay? He's, he's obviously sad about this. But notice why he wept. He wept for losing the blessing, not because of a broken communion with God. He, he's crying because he lost out on the inheritance. It's not for his sin. In your relationship with God, are the tears shed, are your emotions, because you've missed out on what's created? over this fellowship communion that you can have with your creator? Are you crying about missing out on that so-called blessing rather than crying about, I've been separated from God? And this is what a lot of people focus on. They're focused on this creation piece of it. And so they ask these questions. If, if God is real, then why would that happen? If God is real, that shouldn't happen. And again, focusing on creation rather than the creator. Focusing on these outcomes that are supposed to be rather than the relationship with a creator God. Verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them for they could not endure the order that was given if even a beast touches the mountain it shall be stoned indeed so terrifying was the sight that Moses said I tremble with fear but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal, ga festal gathering what in the world is all that 
Here are a couple pictures that, that the author is drawing. The first picture is that of Mount Sinai. Okay, Mount Sinai. That's representing this gift of the law. Now, the other picture is found in verse 22. That's Mount Zion. So Mount Sinai, Mount Zion. Mount Zion is representing the coming of the gospel through Jesus Christ. So these pictures are a reminder that we don't come to the mountain of legalism. We don't go to the Mount, Mount uh, uh, Sinai. We come to Mount Zion, a picture of peace, of joy, of light. And this is the reality we are to live in. And there's this darkness and this fear to live under this law, Sinai. But in coming to know Christ, Zion, all that changes. That we don't live in these shadows anymore because of what Christ has done for us on the cross, in the tomb, now with the right, in the right hand of God. And he has overcome this darkness so that we don't have to live in this darkness anymore. And if you can picture this finished work of Christ, it makes no sense to quit right now. That you need to keep going. That the finish line is in view. That you can see Mount Zion. Verse 23 here. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him, who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven." I want to focus on that phrase in verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. So in generations past, they had the prophets. Not just one, but prophet among prophet. Like prophet over prophet. Just continually, continually giving them a message from God. But the people rejected those prophets because the prophets didn't tell them things that they wanted to hear. Kind of like your parents when you were teenagers. You just tune them out instantly, right? You, you don't want to hear that, which is understandable. You would get it, right? It, but how many of us want to accept things that we don't like to hear? You tend to listen to political pundits you agree with, right? Because you don't want to hear the other side, really. You want to hear that side because they agree with you. And if they tell you something contrary, you don't like that. How many of us want to do things that our flesh disagrees with? That's why sexual immorality is rampant. Because you want to feed that appetite. You don't want to listen to someone saying like, you're worshiping creation over creator. That's essentially what's happening. But that's essentially what's happening with a lot of sin. And that we worship creation over creator. But the prophets were right, even though the people didn't like what they had to say. And because the people rejected the prophets, some really terrible things happened. And we have all of history to tell us of those things that happened, like the Babylonian captivity. So if that happened to the people who had these prophets speaking to them about their lives, what do we think is going to happen when the Son of God speaks to the people and they reject Jesus Christ, the Son of God? People didn't escape what the prophet said. People will not escape what Christ says. 
For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Continuing on to verse 26. And that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. We'll wrap up this message with this phrase in verse 28. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Meaning, we don't offer to God unacceptable worship, which is marked with irreverence, which is marked with contempt, bitterness. See, the worship time that we have here is not trivial, hopefully. Hopefully it's not superficial, that our worship is identified with reverence, with awe. And this is not talking about style, or it's kind of the externals of worship. This is talking about what is happening inside, in your soul, in your heart, in your mind, as you are worshiping the Lord. Is there a genuine sense of reverence, of awe, when we declare God's glory? Now, worship does not begin with us and our needs. It's not about our enjoyment or our satisfaction or song selection or any of that sort of stuff. See, that's all creation. That's all creation. We are not about worshiping creation. We're about worshiping the creator. And so we are to approach with thankful hearts in reverence and awe to God who is a consuming fire. Because he will burn every created thing up that is not pure. We worship the creator. See to it. See to it that you keep strong and straight. See to it that you strive for peace with everyone and for holiness. Verse 14. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up. Verse 15. See to it that you reject sexual immorality and unholiness. Verse 16. See to it that you do not refuse Jesus Christ who is speaking. Verse 25. And lastly, verse 28. See to it that you offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for your encouragement for us to persist and to continue, to see to it all these various instructions, that they're not simply just do's and don'ts, but God, for your formative grace that you offer to us to grab onto. And so I ask God for your empowerment to your church to be able to do that. And as we enter into a time of worship, Lord, may we offer to you acceptable worship. That all those created things that are in our mind, may they be pure. You are a consuming fire. And may we worship you in reverence and in awe. In Jesus' name, amen.